Would you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21? And as you're finding your place, let's stand together. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have preserved uh, the account of that first Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry, as your son and our king entered into Jerusalem to be crowned king. And yet, the crown was not what we expected. Our king, within a week, was crucified. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You knew full well what awaited you as you rode into Jerusalem. This morning as we reflect on what you knew full well and what we have come to know, I pray that your spirit would fill us with awe, thanksgiving, humble gratitude, for a king who would die for his kingdom. Lord, please glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. Bless this church in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to take a break uh, this week and next and Good Friday from going through the book of Romans. 
Although you will see a thematic tie-in with where we are in the, uh, the calendar with what we went through last week looking at wrath. I mean, the cross is all about the wrath of God. It's the place where God's wrath was satisfied. So it's a good place that we've made it to in Romans. And now we're just going to take a break and today and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we're going to be going to the book of Isaiah. For the last two weeks, as I said, we've been learning about wrath. Wrath is that great bedrock of the Christian faith. The gospel is built upon the wrath of God. Without the wrath of God, we have no need of a gospel. The the whole point of the gospel is that God is righteous. He is just and He will not tolerate sin forever. So the coming of a king is not good news. And this is what that crowd on Palm Sunday did not understand. They did not understand that it was not good news that their king was coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley up through the Mercy Gate. That was not good news unless the king came to die, which we know that he did. Why, why would I say that's not good news? Psalm 2, and there's several other places, but Psalm 2 is just its like an anthem in my spirit this last year. Psalm 2 is very clear that the king is coming to bring justice and righteousness and that he will reign over Israel and the nations with a rod of iron. What does that mean? It means he's finally going to put an end to to our rebellion. He's finally going to stop us from sinning. And the way that he does that is he's going to execute judgment. He's coming as a divine warrior king. That's what the vision of the Messiah is in Psalm 2. And that's why it's not good news. Because if the king comes in justice and righteousness with a rod of iron to, to end our rebellion, we all die. And then after we die, God raises us back to life and then He takes us before the judgment seat, the great white throne, and He takes book after book after book after book off of his shelves in his great library and every book is a biography of one of our lives and he opens it and he reads it and after he gets to the last page of your life and my life and everyone's life as we stand before him he closes the book and he declares his judgment against us and the judgment is guilty and he condemns us And He banishes us and we're put away from our God and our King. That's reality without the Gospel. That's what would have happened if Jesus came into Jerusalem to receive His crown without first going to the cross. You see, it's it's the justice and the righteousness of our King, of of King Jesus. It's it's the reign that is promised in Scripture that He will come to put an end to our rebellion. He will come to establish uh, full equity in the land again. And it's exactly that justice that compelled Him to go to the cross because He wanted to populate His kingdom with us. With the elect. Those whom God had foreknown from before the foundation of the world. And the only way to do that was to pay for our sin. to, To... Bring us into a right relationship with God so that when the King returns, see, God's coming back or Christ is coming back, same thing. 
And again, he will land on the Mount of Olives and he will again descend into the Kidron Valley. And again, he'll go through the mercy gate. And then there will be a judgment. And we will stand because our King came first to die on the cross. We've been talking about wrath, which I've just shown is the baseline, the bedrock of the Gospel. The Gospel saves us from the wrath of God. The crowds that were hailing Jesus as their King did not understand that. Let us go back in time. I want to go back in time to that first Palm Sunday, but more than that, I want to go back an additional uh, 750 years to the time of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about Palm Sunday. And I want us to see what God inspired this prophet to write about a day that was long in the future for him, which is now long in the past for us. And I want us to understand Palm Sunday through the lens that God gives us in Isaiah's prophecy. Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 59? The problem with dropping into Isaiah 59 is that there are 58 chapters that come before today's preaching text. So bear with me for three or four hours and I'll bring you up to speed. I won't do that. But I do want to give you context. I mean, what is it that we're going to be looking at here? Uh, the book of Isaiah can be divided into three four sections, but we're going to focus on three. The first section goes to the end of chapter 39. So Isaiah 1-39 to basically is all about God promising to bring justice and judgment to His people because of their idolatry and social injustice. That is, he, he looked for righteousness and all he saw was wickedness. He, he looked for right worship and all he saw was idolatry. And so he prophesied uh, through many different prophets that, and asked them, pleaded with them to repent. But Isaiah prophesies that they won't repent. And from the king all the way down, injustice and idolatry would reign. So by the time you get to chapter 39, judgment's coming. And chapter, sorry, yeah, chapter 39 ends with a promise of coming exile to King Hezekiah. Your people will be taken into exile because of your sin and their sin. So, so the first 39 chapters are all about judgment, exile. Then you have the, the middle section of the book, which goes from chapter 40 to 55. And this is all about deliverance. Comfort, comfort my people. That's how chapter 40 starts. And, and God says, look, I've punished you for your sin, but I haven't forgotten about you. I still love you. You're still my people. And I'm going to deliver you from exile. So they're sitting in, in Babylon and Isaiah prophesies that God would deliver them out of Babylon. And so for chapters 40 through 48, God talks about a second exodus. Just as he brought the people out of Egypt by Moses, so he's going to bring them out of Babylon by Cyrus. Cyrus being the Persian king. Then you have chapters 49 through 55, which is the second half of this middle section. And God there says, look, I've brought you out of exile in Babylon, but you still have a sin problem. I'm going to have to deal with that. 
That's where you get the servant songs, these beautiful songs of a suffering servant that would come to, to die for the sin of God's people. And so you get in there the double deliverance. First deliverance is very historical, earthy, real. People coming out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. And then 49 through 55 is all about, but I, gotta, I have to deliver you more deeply than that. I need to rescue you from your sin or else bringing you out of Babylon is only a temporary stopgap and you'll find yourself somewhere else and I'll have to deliver you again in a third exodus and then a fourth exodus and then a you know, fifth exodus on and on and on. So God says we've got to deal with the root of the problem. That's 49 through 55. Then you get the last section of the book which is chapters 56 through 66. And to put it bluntly, God says, I've delivered you out of exile, but you're still sinning. Have you learned nothing? I still see injustice. I still see idolatry. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring Gentiles into my kingdom. And I'll bring the contrite among you into my kingdom, but the rest of you I'm going to banish. And then in the middle of this section, you get this beautiful picture of a Messiah, a servant, who's going to establish a new Zion. Zion is that mountain that Jerusalem's built on. And, and just a little bit later in this section, there's a new heavens and a new earth where Isaiah is saying, God will recreate everything. And those who are contrite, those who are repentant, He will bring into a new creation. But the rest, they'll perish in my judgment. So that's the, that's the context. What we're doing here, we're picking up in this third section. So first section, judgment in exile. Uh, middle section, deliverance from exile, deliverance from sin. Third section, why are you still sinning? Why are you still uh, oppressing my people? Why, why are you still worshiping false idols? Those of you who want to do that, I'll condemn. But there are some, including Gentiles, that I'm going to bring into a new creation. It's in this third section where we find our text here in chapter 59. So give you a little bit more uh, immediate context now. That's the big picture. A little bit more immediate context. In chapters 57 and 58, God through the prophet is lamenting that the people that he's going to bring out of exile are worshiping false gods. Not only that, they're, they're pretending to worship the true God by fasting and offering sacrifices, but their hearts are far from God. So God hates their worship. It's chapter 57, 58. Then chapter 59, the first 13 verses, which we're not going to read, God says, not only is your, your worship polluted before me, and I hate it, but you're oppressing one another again. Everything that caused to your first exile, you're doing it again. And that's where we're going to pick up. So God's angry. The, the context of this passage is God's angry. Look at all that He's done for His people. And they haven't learned. So picking up in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 14. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away. For truth 
has stumbled in the public squares. An uprightness cannot enter. Oh, truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It summarizes really what's going on. Take a look at verse 14. There's four words there. God is looking for these things and He can't find them. He's looking for justice. It's nowhere to be found. It's been turned back. Anyone who tries to bring forward justice, they get turned back. They get pushed down. God looks for righteousness. People to do that which is right. To live their lives in accordance with the law. But it stands far away. Anyone who is seeking to live a righteous life, they're told to stand outside of the assembly. There's no place for them among the people. Oh, truth. God loves truth. He's looking for someone to tell the truth and to live according to the truth, but it has stumbled in the public squares. This is talking about the governance and the the public squares of commerce and the public squares of worship. You would hope that once the people get back in the land and they rebuild the temple, you would hope that there would be some truth in the the worship that's happening at the temple, but it's not there. You would hope that, that those who are deciding cases of litigation, that they would seek to punish the guilty and liberate the innocent, but the truth isn't there. You would hope that, that in, in the commerce of the nation that the scales would, would be accurate, but it's not there. God's looking for uprightness. Just someone to stand up and say, this is what God wants. But any upright person is not permitted to enter. You get the point. Look at verse 15. Because under, underpinning all of this is the truth, right? When you, when you uh, walk away from the truth, when you erode the truth, then all of these other things happen. Because truth is lacking, the one who tries to depart from evil makes himself a prey. Anyone who is trying to live according to the truth is persecuted. He becomes like, like a fox on a fox hunt. He's a prey to everyone else. There's no social justice. This is basically what we said last week, right? Romans 1, 18-32. That when you worship the creation rather than the Creator... Right? So that's chapters 57 and 58 here. Right? False worship, idol worship. So when you, when you have a, a twisting of your worship, what follows that? All kinds of depravity which leads to social injustice. It's exactly what Paul said in Romans. It's exactly what Isaiah is saying here in Isaiah 57, 58, and 59. False worship leads to social injustice which leads to what? How do you think God wants to respond to this or will respond to this? Well, Isaiah 59, verse 15, starting in halfway through verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased Him. 
It's too weak a word. The Lord was revolted by it. There's no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God looked at it and he said, I hate it. I hate your worship. I hate how you're oppressing one another. And he was astonished that there was not even one man that could stand in the breach and say, this is wrong. Where, where were the prophets? No, he, God is prophesying through Isaiah some 200 years before this would happen. There's no one to intercede. There's no one that's standing up to the false worship and the social injustice. So God has to bring His own salvation. His own arm will bring Him salvation. His own righteousness will uphold Him. God has decided that He's going to have to do something about it Himself. There's no one there that will correct the error of God's people's way. In, in the Bible, hand or arm means power. Hand means power. How much more does arm mean power? God's own arm is going to do something about this. Not just His hand, but His arm. And it's going to bring Him salvation. This is hard for us to understand. What, do, what does this mean, bring Him salvation? It's ambiguous at best. Because when we think of salvation, we think what? Of God delivering a people. Is this what Isaiah means? Might be. But in the original context, what it also might mean is that God is going to vindicate Himself. He's going to bring salvation to Himself. He's going to save Himself from this wicked generation of people. He's not going to allow them to malign His name like this. His own righteousness will uphold Him. His righteousness, His natural outrage at the unrighteousness of His people will uphold Him. He upholds Himself by satisfying His righteousness. How does He do that? He pours out His wrath. He judges. He condemns. So what do you anticipate the Lord will do? Verses 17 to 19 are frightful verses. Isaiah 59, verse 17. So He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. For He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Amen. 
what will God do? He will strap on armor for battle. His breastplate is his own righteousness. His helmet is the salvation that he's going to bring for himself. His uh, clothing are garments of vengeance. You're going to tread on my courts. You're going to make my name look bad among the nations. You're going to worship false gods. You're going to pretend to worship me with sacrifices and fasting. All the while, your hearts are far from me. I have vengeance, says the Lord. He puts on as a cloak his zeal. That is, he's anxious to do this. He wants to do this. He's fired up to go to war. What's most troubling about this is who is he going war to war against? It's in verse 18. Wrath to who? His adversaries. But context in the book of Isaiah says that his adversaries are his own people. That remnant that he brought out of exile and restored to the land of Jerusalem. Those are his adversaries. In fact, if you go back to chapter 56, eunuchs and Gentiles that would have been outside of his people in previous generations, he grafts in. He says, I'm going to choose for myself some Gentiles. I'm going to choose for myself some eunuchs. And a eunuch wouldn't have been able to go up and worship in, in previous times. But God says, those are the people I'm going to choose because my own people, my own remnant that I brought out of exile are now my adversaries. Repayment to my enemies. His own people. But then he says, to the coastlands he will render repayment. But he's not going to stop with his own people. When he comes as a divine warrior to bring an end to his own people because of their sin and wickedness, he's also going to do away with the whole world. In Hebrew, the coastlands mean the far reaches of the world, the end of the earth. And so what you have here is imagery that reminds you of a second flood. That, that this experiment with Abraham and Abraham's family, it looks like it's going to fail because the God's chosen people, even the remnant that He delivers out of exile, are no better than the people in the days of Noah. And so He's going to destroy them and he's going to destroy the coastlands, the end of the earth. And he says, everyone shall fear the name of the Lord from the west to the glory of the rising sun. Where does the sun rise? In the east. Everyone from where the sun rises to where the sun sets is going to be in fearful dread of the glory of God when He rouses Himself to bring vengeance and repayment for the sin and wickedness of His own people and of the nations. Do you get the point? Then there's one last image. When 
God rouses himself when he gets up, when he decides that his patience has run out. He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. If you are a native to Judea, you would understand this. There's a lot of desert there, and there are what's called a wadi. These are dry riverbeds, and it's so dry that it becomes like concrete. But if you get a flash rainstorm, they fill with water, and they, they go fast because there's steep mountains. And if you're in one of those wadis, you are washed away. Again, imagery that's very similar to the flood. Wrath and judgment to the coastlands. A rushing flood to destroy all people. It's quite the image. God, as a divine warrior, suited up for battle against Jerusalem and the world, overtaking everyone in a flash flood that can't help but remind us of Noah and his flood. And no one from the rising to the setting sun will escape. Except the prophecy is not over. Take a look at verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, says the Lord. A Redeemer will come to Zion. Where's Zion? Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. Here's the picture. God has had enough with the sin of humanity. So he straps on armor ready to go to war against humanity. And as he's ready to strike down Jerusalem and the nations in his wrath, and we are told that we ought to dread this day, a Redeemer comes to Zion. God's suited up for battle, but a Redeemer comes to Zion. What's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Palm Sunday. God is ready to strike down His people, the nations. But first, He sends a Redeemer to Zion. And they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? crowd shouting Hosanna thought that they were going to get a king to overthrow Rome. Do you know what was going through Jesus' mind? That God was suited up to go to war against the sin of humanity. And He was to strike down His own people and strike down all of the people and all of the nations from rising to setting sun, from coastland to coastland. The wrath of God was going to be poured out like a rushing flood. And everyone ought to have stood in dread of the wrath and the glory of God. But He sent forth His Redeemer into Zion on a donkey. So that anyone from Jacob or the nations who's contrite in heart turn from transgressions would be saved on that great and terrible day of the Lord. The people expected a king. But Jesus knew that if He came first as, as a lion with justice and righteousness in His growl, if He stooped over the prey to do what ought to have been done, who could stand? Said he came as a lamb riding on a donkey, a redeemer. Why? To face the divine warrior who was suited up, ready for battle, to strike his people with the full weight of his wrath. Jesus knew exactly why he was coming into Jerusalem. He knew exactly why he entered through the mercy gate to Zion. And what does it look like when a Redeemer comes to Zion? From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli! Eli! Lama sabachthani! My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me?
because the Redeemer sent forth to Zion. And the wrath of God fell on him. Instead of us. We're told that the divine warrior suited up for battle, God himself, to strike down the world for their sin. Wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. Even to the coastland he rendered repayment. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Perfect justice. Except Jesus was his own son who had never sinned. The word redeemer means purchase, buy back. Jesus, who had no debt to God himself, purchased our sin debt. He he bought our debt. Who does that? I'm going to buy your debt. I'm going to pay it off so that you don't have to. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rode into Jerusalem. He saw his father with a breastplate of righteousness, with a helmet of salvation, with clothing of vengeance, and for a cloak, zeal. He says, I'll go. I'll be the man that stands in the gap for God's people. Remember how we started? God looked and marveled that there was no one to intercede. So he sent his own son. And Jesus was struck down by his father for us. One last thing I want to show you. If you go back to Isaiah 59, 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So he sent forth his son. And then the second half, which is difficult to interpret. His own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. His own arm. That's the power of God. And I said it might mean that God saved himself from our malignant uh, smearing of his name. But we find out that that salvation is so much more. If you go back to Isaiah 53 verse 1, we're told that this Redeemer, this suffering servant sent to Zion, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Sorry, go back to verse 1. 
So this one who grew up before us was going to die for our sins. Verse 1, who's believed in him? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is God's power to bring salvation through the death of the suffering servant. It might be exactly what Isaiah has in mind in chapter 59, verse 16. Oh, the power of God to bring His wrath and His justice against His own Son so that we might come out from under the wrath of God and be saved. Palm Sunday is no small thing. It's not just about people not understanding who Jesus was. It was Jesus fully understanding who he was, choosing to be the Redeemer, to meet the divine warrior on Zion's holy hill for us. My only point of application for us this morning is this. Marvel at our God. What kind of God do we serve that would do this for us? Give me any other God, any other world religion, any other philosophy or worldview, nothing, nothing comes anywhere close to the glory and the love and the majesty of our God. He gave His one and only Son so that we would never need to fall under the wrath of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank You for this view of Palm Sunday and Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot even begin to fathom what You carried, not just up Golgotha's hill to the cross, but into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday when You knew full well that You were to meet the full wrath of God, Your Father you had done no wrong and you did that for us may we never ever treat your gospel lightly but rather Lord help us to marvel more and more at who you are and what you've done and help us to align our lives to live in response to a God who loves us with such depth oh God we love you Help us to love you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.